This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. As the Sri Lankans would say, Buddha Saranai, the Buddha's blessings be with you, and welcome to the program. I hope your week has gone well and you're looking forward to a restful and happy weekend. In this series of programs, we've been considering bodhicitta, the mind that takes on the responsibility to attain enlightenment to help all beings everywhere. We went through the two ways of developing bodhicitta, the six-cause-and-one-effect method and the exchanging self-for-others method. Then we started on the mind-training techniques that help us to maintain and strengthen the altruistic intention. And last week, we spoke about the five forces and how to recognize making progress in the mind-training exercises. Do you remember what the five forces are? They show us how to practice during life, and then how to apply the five forces at death time to ensure a happy rebirth the next time around. Let's just check them again. The first is the force of beneficial intention, which is a very strong commitment to practice exchanging self and others now and in the future. We try to keep this commitment in mind as much as possible so that in future bodhicitta will arise in our minds without effort. Then the second force is familiarity. To become completely at one with bodhicitta, we try to do every action with a bodhicitta motivation, from getting up in the morning to going to sleep at night. The more used to bodhicitta we make the mind, the greater their chance bodhicitta will effortlessly arise for us in the future. Then we came to the third force, that of the white seed. In one way or another, we hear about bodhicitta and that leaves a seed or a potential in our consciousness. We have no realization of bodhicitta yet, so that potential is latent and needs nourishing. All the virtuous deeds we do, motivated by bodhicitta, will nurture the seed on our mind until it blossoms into the full experience of this mind of enlightenment. So, creating positive actions with a bodhicitta motivation is the force of the white seed. The force of destruction refers to eliminating the self-cherishing mind and all the obstructions to exchanging self for others whenever they arise. And finally, the fifth force is that of dedication. We dedicate the positive potential from our positive actions to quickly realizing exchanging self for others and attaining enlightenment to help all beings everywhere. Those are the five forces to practice during our lifetime but we can also use them at death to transfer the consciousness to a happy rebirth. In the practice at death time, making a strong determination to practice bodhicitta in the intermediate state and in coming lives is the force of beneficial intention. If we then stay mindful of the mind training and transform the suffering of death into compassion, renunciation and wisdom until losing conceptual consciousness, we will be practicing the second force, that of familiarity. Giving away all our possessions and wealth before we die, so we go without any attachment, encourages the force of the white seed. And then we also do as much purification practices as we can to clear negativity that might arise at death time, and that's the force of destruction. Finally, the force of dedication at death means that we dedicate all our positive potential to our spiritual teachers and the Buddhas. We also make prayers that we'll never be separated from such teachers and always be able to practice the mind training in bodhicitta. 
That is very briefly a recap of the five forces in death and life, and now we're going to discuss the commitments to follow when we take on mind training practices. But before that, let's set our motivation for this program as we normally do. Seeing we are talking about bodhicitta, it would be a good idea to make that our motivation today. Think, if you can, that we are spending this half hour together so that we can become enlightened, not only for our own benefit, but to be the greatest benefit to all others as well. Thank you. The text we are following is the seven points of mind training by a Tibetan master by the name of Chikawa. Following on this section on how to practice on a daily basis, as outlined in the five forces, the text lists 18 commitments to keep in mind. In its cryptic fashion, the text says, Practice mind training without contradicting other commitments. Avoid reckless behavior. Avoid being biased. Make changes to your aspiration while remaining, new, remaining natural. Do not expose the faults of others. Do not com- contemplate others' faults. Purify your greatest delusion first. Abandon all hope for results. Abandon poisonous food. Begrudge your delusions. Do not retaliate to abuse. Do not wait in ambush. Do not pinpoint the weaknesses of others. Do not use others as scapegoats. Do not misuse the Dharma. Do not aim to be the quickest to the top. Do not turn a god into a demon. And do not seek happiness by causing others suffering. Now, even if we're not particularly interested in bodhicitta or mind training, these are all good practices to cultivate on a spiritual path. They will help us not create negative karma and encourage positive states of mind. So let's go through them and see what they mean. The first one is practice mind training without contradicting other commitments. Sometimes we might get to thinking, oh, I've bodhicitta motivation and love for all beings, so I don't have to take much notice of other commitments, like the five precepts or the monk's vows. This is a mistake, and this first mind training commitment tells us not to think like that. We still have to avoid the ten non-virtues, that's killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words, gossip, covetousness, harmful thoughts and wrong views. Actually, if we have a bodhicitta motivation, it becomes more important to avoid such actions that bring harm. This commitment also means that even though we are developing bodhicitta and following the mind training, we must avoid looking down on other teachings of the Buddha. Oh, I have the bodhicitta and I am doing mind training and I don't have to pay attention to the rest. That is just unimportant. Such thinking contradicts the mind training. Avoid reckless behavior is the next commitment. And no, this has got nothing to do with surfing river rapids with a bodyboard. It means we have to watch our behavior to see that we don't unnecessarily disturb the environment or others. We might think that because we are practitioners of bodhicitta and mind training, it's okay to overlook, overlook trivial harms to others in the environment, like chopping down a tree in which animals or spirits live. Rather, we have to be careful that what we do is not harmful to either the environment 
or the creatures that live in it. I'll tell you a story about one of my friends who was a bit careless about what he did and suffered for it. He was staying at a retreat center on the Coromandel where it was known a non-human being lived who wasn't particularly well disposed to Buddhism or Buddhists. Anyway, my friend was down at the far end of the property where this being hung out and needed to relieve himself, so he did so against one of the trees down there. That night he came down with a very unpleasant rash that he couldn't get rid of. Because the rash came out of the blue and wasn't related to anything he had eaten or touched, my friend went to a highly realized lama and asked him for advice. The monk thought for a while and then asked him about what he'd done on the property. When he heard that my friend had urinated against the tree, the monk told him that he had offended the being living in the land and it had punished him with a rash. He advised my friend to do some purification practices and make offerings to the being, which my friend did. As soon as he did, the rash disappeared. Of course, my friend is a good practitioner and didn't. I don't think he thought he could indulge in what the text calls reckless behavior, but it does go to show that we have to be careful about what we do in the environment, not to offend others. The next commitment is avoid being biased. And yes, this does mean what it sounds like. In particular, it tells us not to get caught up in categorizing people into friends, enemies and strangers. Those of you who were with us when we went through the two ways of developing bodhicitta will remember the friend, enemy and stranger meditation we went through as a preliminary to create an even playing field in our mind. We considered how friends and enemies are not long-lasting. A friend can become an enemy or a stranger. An enemy can easily become our best friend, and people are always strangers before they become friends or enemies. We saw that it's actually not helpful to classify people into these three divisions, as it only encourages attachment, aversion, and indifference. So part of the mind training is to see people all in a warm-hearted way, without bias or discrimination. Then the text says, Make changes to your aspirations while remaining natural. If we want to gain realizations, we have to change our attitude, not our external behavior. This instruction tells us it's not much good to appear holy and all goody-goody on the outside if we're only covering up the same old troublesome mental patterns on the inside. Our outside behavior has to be dictated by our inner change. And so if we become more renounced, more compassionate and wise in our outward behavior, it must be a reflection of that inward transformation. This reminds me of a story about a meditator who had sat for some time in a cave meditating on patience. A highly realized yogi came by and asked him what he was doing. Oh, I'm meditating on patience, said the meditator proudly. Oh yeah, well eat my dung, replied the yogi. The meditator got very upset and shouted at him, What do you mean, eat your dung? You eat my dung! The yogi just laughed and walked on. The meditator realized he had a lot of work to do before he could say he had developed realizations of patience. So, as one commentary says, sitting in the lotus position with an arrow straight back and a faraway look in the eyes, but not changing internally, will bring no realizations. Do not expose the faults of others is the next commitment. I like to laugh at the quote by comedian Jack Handy, the one that goes, 
Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their, cho- in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them and you have their shoes. But I don't know that Geshe Chakawa, the author of the Seven Points of Mind Training, would have laughed all that much at criticizing anyone or taking off with their shoes. His instruction says, unless we have a bodhicitta motivation to prevent someone committing non-virtue, we should not criticize them. Only if we are sure that our fault-finding will help them should we open our mouths. Actually, we should be very careful of criticizing others because if we find fault with a great being like a bodhisattva, we will inevitably go to the hells and we have no idea who is a great being. Our sweet, stupid dog could be a bodhisattva taking that form to teach us something. And if we criticize her harshly, we could land up in a very hot and uncomfortable place in another life. So it's better not to find fault with others unless we have a pure motivation and sure they're not a great being. And who can be sure of anything like that? The text then goes on to say, do not contemplate others' faults. And boy, is this a hard one. Maybe it's not so with you, but I find my mind easily catches on to something it thinks is a fault in someone else and then wants to dwell on it. It takes some effort to turn the mind away from this sort of useless cogitation. Of course, if we just let the mind focus on others' faults, sooner or later our mouths will follow suit and then we will have broken both this and the previous commitment. It's much better actually to look at our own faults and try to turn those around than to think about what is wrong with others. You probably know the biblical quote about taking the plank out of your own eye before rabbiting on about the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. The Tibetans have a similar saying that goes, you can easily see the louse on someone else's back, but it's difficult to see the elephant on your own. Then the text reads, purify your greatest delusion first. Okay, so if you were to be typecast in a film, would you be the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland or Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol? I guess we really wouldn't want to be either of those unpleasant characters, but if we look closely at ourselves, we will usually find something of those characters in us. According to this instruction, we must find which of them is the strongest. Perhaps anger is our worst delusion, like the Queen of Hearts. Or maybe we are greedy and miserly like Scrooge, or Augustus Gloop, the gluttonous boy in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory who couldn't stop eating chocolate. So whatever our greatest delusion, the text tells us to concentrate on eliminating that before tackling the others. Of course, each of us ordinary people is a mixture of all the delusions, but our character is determined by the amount of each in the mix. To purify the delusions from our system, we attack the biggest one first, applying the opposing practice, then the next, and so on. So if anger torments us the most, we concentrate on developing patience. If we are very desirous, we meditate on the ugly aspects of what we desire and on how the happinesses of cyclic existence are temporary and cannot bring real long-term happiness, and so on. Abandon all hope for results is the next on the list. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't hope to gain bodhicitta or enlightenment. What it means is that we shouldn't look for gratitude, fame, wealth or adoration for our positive actions. The point of virtuous actions is to benefit others, not to gain something for ourselves. How many times have we done something for someone else and been upset when they didn't even say thank you?
That upset feeling says a lot about our reason for the action. It wasn't for the benefit of the other person, but to grab some reward for ourselves. It was a kind of business deal. I'll do this for you, but you must then make me feel good. No money might have changed hands, but there was still a barter going on. And the text says to develop bodhicitta, we have to stop behaving in this way with other people. If we do something with bodhicitta motivation, it will be without wishing anything for ourselves at all, not even the briefest of thanks. The ninth commitment of of mind training is abandon poisonous food. And no, this is not talking about those red and white fly agaric mushrooms that look so pretty, but are deadly to some people and make others see weird visions. It refers to doing virtuous actions with a self-cherishing attitude. Virtuous actions done with a pure altruistic attitude to benefit others is like a dish of beautifully prepared and delicious food. However, if the actions are motivated by self-cherishing, they are like that same dish with an invisible poison mixed in. In other words, instead of bringing happiness, they will result in a lot of suffering. Begrudge your delusions, the text tells us next. Now normally when someone does us down, we're quick to think of ways to get back at them, aren't we? But the text says, our greatest harm doesn't come from other beings, it comes from our delusions, attachment, hatred, pride and so on. So instead of holding a grudge against other beings, hold one against your delusions. Buddhism often says that by being kindly towards our enemies, we can often make friends with them. But by acting kindly towards our delusions, they just harm us more and more. Through the self-cherishing attitude that has driven us from one one life to another for countless lives, we've become very familiar with our delusions. But that doesn't mean they haven't caused us immeasurable harm in the past and will continue to do so in the future. Recognizing them as the most harmful of enemies who will never be kind to us, we should, Chikawa says, hold a grudge against them until they are completely defeated and can never arise again. How do you react when someone abuses you? The next commitment tells us that we can't retaliate in such a situation, that we should try to practice patience instead. I think sometimes, if someone is being really unreasonable, it is easy to dismiss their abuse, but at other times it's much more difficult to stay calm. For instance, I found it's not uncommon uncommon for drivers in Auckland to get terribly red in the face and loud if they're if in their opinion you've made a mistake on the roads. It's easy then to feel righteous and curse back at them or do something worse. But that's a good opportunity to practice patience and not allow ourselves to get rattled. Why, after all, should we pump up our blood pressure just because someone else has pumped up theirs? In fact, if we can wish them well as they go on their way, we would have won an easy victory over the mind of retaliation. The next commitment is similar. It says, do not wait in ambush. Of course, it does not mean physically what it says, though it could. The meaning here, when someone offends you, is don't keep their offense in mind until such a time as you could harm them in return. As with the previous commitment, we're advised to practice patience, and instead of leaping out at them when an opportunity arises, find a way to forgive them. I recently read about children in Albania who were virtually imprisoned in their own homes because of blood feuds between families. 
The Albanians have this ancient custom called kunon, in which if a man kills someone from another family, the other family has a right to take the life of any male in the killer's extended family. They can kill him anywhere except in his own home. This means that the boys in the killer's families can't venture outside their homes, never mind go to school. So until the families get around to sorting the feud out, or one of the males gets, is killed, these boys grow into men hardly ever leaving their own homes. Isn't this just a case of lying in ambush gone absolutely crazy? Though it shows where such ambush leads if you are allowed to go unchecked. We then go on to do not pinpoint the weaknesses of others. And now we're looking at the boss who ridicules the new apprentice at every opportunity. The text says we should avoid this sort of syndrome which humiliates people in front of others. Having taken the Bodhisattva vows, our intention is always to help others, not to give them more to feel uncomfortable about in their lives. Nor should we use others as scapegoats for our own misdeeds or faults. We very easily deflect blame from ourselves by blaming others or situations and not admitting that we may be at fault. Lama Zopa, a very great master, has said this about it. The main Dharma practice is to watch the mind during your daily life and to try to free it from being controlled by delusion, to stop torturing yourself to delu with delusions, abusing yourself with your own delusions. How? By applying the three principal aspects of the path and tantra, or at the very least, impermanence and death. We should realize that the mind is like a baby and we always need to watch it and take care of it. Forgetting to do this for even a few minutes can bring danger to a small child. Suddenly the mind is in great danger, which means your life is in great danger. Because your life is controlled by delusion and engaged in karma, your suffering of samsara will be without end. We blame and criticize others because we don't like suffering. But if we don't like suffering, we should not harm others and create disharmony. This is what interferes with our happiness. What we want and what we are doing are opposite. In other words, by blaming our others, we are creating more unhappiness and so more suffering for ourselves and, and others now and in the future. We are not addressing the very causes of our suffering, our delusions and faults, but by excusing and concealing them, we allow them to harm us even further. Then the text goes on to say, do not misuse the Dharma. You would no doubt have heard of people who use religion to stoke their own egos and fortunes. On the evidence, the founder of the Destiny Church springs easily to mind, but every religion, I think, can look back to people with some charisma who have made their fortunes and reputations spouting its dogma. From a Buddhist point of view, this is anathema. Do not misuse the Dharma tells us not to use the Buddha's teachings to enhance, enhance our own standing or wealth in the world. The purpose of the Dharma, and particularly the Dharma motivated by Bodhicitta, is to gain enlightenment to benefit others. If we use the Dharma to build ourselves up while saying that we are doing it for the sake of all sentient beings, not only are we making fools of ourselves, but we are heading in a direction opposite to enlightenment. The sixteenth commitment is, do not aim to be the quickest to the top. This has a couple of meanings. 
The first is that we shouldn't plan and compete to get the best out of everything for ourselves. You know, like the middle manager in a company whose ambition has outridden his good sense. The one who is fiercely competitive with all and sundry with a view to getting to the top. I think people with highly competitive natures must in the end be very unhappy because we can never win all the time. In fact, we quite often lose in one way or the other and then if we are fixated on being and having the best, the humiliation and misery are immense. Look at Tiger Woods, for instance. Of course, he is the world's greatest golfer, but not staying humble and keeping things in check, but allowing arrogance to develop led to a very big bump in his life. In the other meaning, we are told not to use devious means to get possessions of a group for ourselves. Then the text says, Do not turn a god into a demon. One of the six most harmful afflictive emotions is pride, and that is what is this line is talking about. Just like anything else of benefit, the Dharma can become a source of suffering if we don't approach and use it correctly. Normally the purpose of the Dharma, and in particular the mind training exercises, is to help us on the path to enlightenment. However, if we use it just to increase our pride and sense of self-worth, it will just become a big hindrance and cause for future suffering. So, for instance, if I agree to present this program on the Dharma, thinking it will be a good way for me to become famous and well-liked, I'm turning the Dharma, which is like a god because it has the potential to save us from suffering, into a demon, which is only harmful. If our practice only leads to more samsara, more pride, attachment or aversion and so on, we are turning a god into a demon. The text tells us to be careful with our intention and not to act in this way. The Buddha said that pride halts all spiritual progress. So if we get all holier than thou with others and think we're some kind of highly realized hotshot, then we haven't even stepped on the path yet and we'll be going in the opposite direction from enlightenment. The last commitment to keep is do not seek happiness by causing others suffering. This is pretty obvious. If we want to do something that we think will bring us satisfaction but which causes unhappiness to others, it's better we forget about doing it. The text then goes on to give a further 22 instructions on how to implement the mind training methods as an aid to keep the above 18 commitments. But we don't have time to go into them today. We've come to the end of the program and I hope it's been of some benefit to you. Thank you for joining us and please do so again next week. Until we meet again, goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.